Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlantucky Brewery opened last month in Castleberry Hill. Rapper Skinny DeVille and Fish Scales caught up with City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes to share their aspirations for the brewery. First... You've probably heard of the novel The Count of Monte Cristo, but have you heard of the first black French general who inspired it? General Alex Dumas was the son of an enslaved black woman and a white Frenchman born in Saint-Domingue, now known as Haiti. He later became the first person of color in the French military to become brigadier general, divisional general, and general-in-chief of a French army. His story is the subject of Théâtre du Rêve's new film Code Noir, Black Code, The Adventures of the First Count of Monte Cristo. Carolyn Cook, Producing Artistic Director of Théâtre du Rêve joins me now via Zoom with the actor Tandy Thomas de Chazor, who plays General Dumas. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Now, Carolyn, why did you name your company Théâtre du Rêve, which means theater of the dream. I had dreamed of acting in French from, I guess, the time I was about 19. And I was studying for a French major in college. I was taking a junior year abroad. And I was studying the Parisian theater season and going to a lot of plays. And I just got filled up with excitement about performing in French. And it, it didn't happen during the rest of my college career, and then it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. And finally, I just said, if this is going to happen, it's going to be because I make it happen. So I produced a play in French here in Atlanta, and that was in, gosh, we performed in January of 1996. And the only thing I could think of to call the producing organization was Theater of the Dream, because it had been mm. my dream for so long. So Théâtre du Rêve. Wow. 
Tandy, how much French did you know before taking on this role? Well, I actually took French for about 12 years throughout high school. However, my pronunciation of French is terrible. Oh. I, I can understand French. I can read French. But for some reason, when it gets into my mouth sometimes, doesn't always come off the right way. So we did make some changes and I'm really excited about the way Carolyn worked with those things for the show, yes. We created a bilingual version of the play that has turned out to be a tremendous blessing because we were able to create a contemporary American character from New Orleans, Louisiana, also, she's a fictional character, but she's also descended from people who lived on the island of Saint-Domingue, which later became Haiti. So having that access to both languages has been a tremendous asset to the play. Okay. How did you first discover General Alex Dumas? He has a much longer name, and it <laughs> sounds does. gorgeous in French, but you yes. can say it better than I. Thomas Alexandre David de la Payetterie. I discovered him because one of our board members and my dear friend, Baxter Jones, recommended that I read the book The Black Count by Tom Reese, which is a terrific book, and it's a biography of General Alex Dumas, a person I had never heard of. Um, that book came out, I think, in 2012. I read it, so, you know, somewhere 2017, something like that, and I knew that I wanted to do something with that material and introduce that person to our audience. He's just so captivating. Would you give us an overview of his story? Yes. He was born in on the island of Saint-Domingue, and his mother, marie Cécette Dumas, had been enslaved. She may or may not have been enslaved at the time that he was born. She was with and probably married to his father, who was a French aristocrat who had kind of gone rogue. <laughs> He had moved to Haiti to make his fortune. Things didn't go so well. He moved to another part of Haiti, changed his name, and set up a small tobacco plantation. And our hero, Thomas Alexandre David de la Payetterie, was raised there on the west side of the island. But his father decided to return to France and reclaim his place in the French aristocracy in, I believe, 1775. And then he sent for his son. Unfortunately, to get the money for his passage to France, Thomas Alexandre's father sold him. Sold oh. him. Yes. Sold him with the right of repurchase. So, yeah. Oh. Uh, he used his son to get the money to go back. And then he did send for him and uh, repurchased him. So that's a fascinating story to me. This is a, this is a man who crossed the Atlantic in the other direction as a slave. But once he was on French soil, the law stated that there are no slaves in France. And from that time forward, he was a member of the French aristocracy. He received an excellent education, including in the military arts. And after a while, his father, who, as I might have mentioned, wasn't such a savory character, cut him off, <laughs> remarried, cut off his son from his uh, financial inheritance, and Thomas Alexandre decided to join the French army as a private. And to do that, he had to enlist in something other than the family's aristocratic name, and he chose the name of his mother, Marie-Cécette Dumas. 
And from there, uh, I guess the rest is history. He went on to rise in the ranks of the Revolutionary Army. As soon as the revolution broke out, he became an important figure. And he even fought alongside Napoleon and eventually crossed Napoleon in some ways that may have had some negative consequences in his life. But he married a lovely woman from France, and they had two children, one of whom was Alexandre Dumas, who became the writer and the author of The Count of Monte Cristo, and who was then the father of Alexandre Dumas' fils, who wrote La Dame aux Camélias, which we know as Camille. So famous, famous writers. Yes. And also the basis of the libretto for the opera La Traviata. La Traviata, that's right. Yes. So he was, well, if you think about it, his mother was the matriarch of a very, very strong line. Yeah. Probably better that he didn't have the aristocratic last name, given where he was situated in the last years of the 19th century in the French Revolution. Absolutely. And he embraced, and we, we put this in the play slash film, he really embraced the ideals of the revolution. Liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, fraternity. He really believed in that. And he believed in that for his fellow Frenchmen and also for the people he knew and loved back in Saint-Domingue because the Haitian Revolution broke out and they were fighting for their independence and their liberty as well. So you mentioned the play. Théâtre du Rêve first performed this story as a stage play in 2019. What made you decide to turn it into a film? COVID. Ah, here we go. Yeah. We were planning to return to live performances this season, but last summer when the Delta variant arose, I thought, oh, let's let's do something that we can send to people in case they can't come to us. And I was particularly thinking of teachers because we have a, a healthy student matinee program where about 50% of our audience is school groups and homeschooling groups coming to the theater to see a play in French, stay for a talk back with the actors, talk about how we learned French and you know what it feels like to work in the language. It's an immersion experience for them and also an opportunity to learn more about French culture and the cultures of other Francophone countries. So that's an important part of our mission and we were not gonna be able to do it. We, I knew that field trips would be difficult for schools. And I felt that going to the theater might also be difficult for some other members of our audience. So we decided to dive into the world of film and it has been such an adventure. Mm. Tandi, had you ever heard of General Alex Duma before taking on this role? No, I had not. I was familiar with his son, Alexandre Dumas, from The Three Musketeers, a lot of a lot of pride from the Black community when you say things like, oh, did you know The Three Musketeers was written by a Black man? That was something that we took pride from for a while, but to find out the other story um, and his lineage was something I was really excited to learn about. Mm. 
If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Reitzes speaking with Carolyn Cook, the producing artistic director of Théâtre du Rêve, and actor Thandi de Chasser, who portrays General Dumas in their new streaming production, Code Noir, Code Black, The Adventures of the First Count of Monte Cristo. I saw that the filmmaker Felipe Barral was your director of photography on Code Noir. He does gorgeous work. What was it like working with him to stage this performance for film? Mm. It was like poetry with a camera. Oh, wow. He was so gracious. He knew that we were coming from a a different space, us being on stage for for so long and being us being used to that. He blended in very well with us. We barely knew he was there. And when and he just he, he it was it was like water, very fluid and very, very gracious with us because, you know, we were doing something new and it was a wonderful experience. I agree. Even when he ha- was right next to us with a handheld, you know, steady cam, he was just part of the story. He was just taking it in himself. And so you didn't feel like a camera was filming you. You felt like a person was listening to you. So it was remarkable. I, I, I thought he did a beautiful job. And the relationship that he and our director of the film, who was also the director of the play, Lauren Morris, the relationship that they built, it was clear to me from the very beginning, was going to be very fruitful. They were on the same page from the get-go, and I didn't even feel a need to look at the video that was shot any given day, you know? I didn't run home and watch the dailies. (laughs) I just said, you know, I have complete trust in this. This collaboration is working, and I am here to do my job as an actor. So that was, oh, that was very comforting and exciting at the same time. What can you tell us about the set and and the different props you use to indicate different locations? Fabric and wood. <laughs> <laughs> the set was designed for this version by Elizabeth Cooper, and uh, she also designed the lights. What we did was Coop created a series of levels that we could climb up and down, kind of based on a spiral staircase. Just the sense that you're we're we're always moving both in time and place because there are flashback scenes in the play, and there are scenes that are in. New Orleans and and scenes that are in different parts of France and Egypt and Italy. So there's a, it's a basic wooden set, but it's also got these three massive pieces of silk. And they are blue, white, and red. Bleu blanc. Tricolore. Right, the tricolor, right. The colors of the French flag. So these pieces of fabric are large enough and fluid enough 
to become all kinds of things. The white fabric becomes the Alps. The red fabric becomes sort of the heartbeat of the marriage, the romance and the marriage and the wife at home wondering when her husband is going to come back from the war. The blue becomes both the seaside in Saint-Domingue where a young Alex is, is playing and running and utterly free and the Atlantic Ocean that he crosses as a slave. So it's a, it's a magical transformation and it's a theatrical, it's frankly theatrical. We're not lying about the fact that we are in a theater, but we are on camera. So we have this combination of two art forms that are melding and we're using all the best of both. Tandi, can you tell us more about inhabiting the role of General Dumas? Yes. General Dumas was such a strong, swarthy type of character, but there's this vulnerability to him that you begin to tap into because when we we meet him, he's in prison and he's been in there for some months, quarantined. But through the flashbacks, we get to delve into his childhood, his relationship with his wife, his passion about freedom and justice. And you see cracks in that exterior. And it was beautiful to be able to still be this hard, this hard person, but still be able to show softness. And he does that. And it was amazing to play with the levels, especially outside of the great, um, the great Carolyn Cook. That was a wonderful person to, to volley with, if you will. Yeah, Carolyn, you portrayed Dumas' wife as well as Napoleon, I saw. (laughs) It's a stretch. (laughs) I I would think what it must be very different, maybe whiplash-inducing to take on both those characters within the same show. You know, it's the joy of acting. I think that one of the things that we love, I mean, I'll just go ahead and admit it. I love to play pretend. It's its from childhood and, and it just gets refined and developed into craft and work as you dive into it as a professional. But no, it's really joyous. I have the benefit of some fantastic costumes designed by Jennifer Schottstadt. And it's the primary one is this coat that has all these hidden magnets in it so that I can turn back one side of the coat and suddenly I have all of the regalia of Napoleon Bonaparte's uniform and then just put on his hat and boom, we're there. We even use that piece of red silk as Napoleon's red sash that you've seen in in a famous painting of him. And then there's another piece that just becomes the skirt of Mary Louise, his wife. There's that, and then there's just just the pure craft of of being an actor and saying, who am I in this situation? Who am I talking to, and what do I want from them? And that is acting 101, and as long as you do that, so much of it is just there. It's just there in the moment. Oh, you just make it sound so easy. <laughs> we know this is where it's not acting 101, it's an art form. Early on, we touched upon some influential descendants of General Dumas. Would you talk more about them? 
Well, his son, Alexandre Dumas, was one of the most prolific writers ever in France. And he did write The Count of Monte Cristo and The Man in the Iron Mask and The the Three Musketeers and on and on and on and on. And, you know, and then Return of the Three Musketeers and then Return of the Three Musketeers, part 17. He just went on and on and on and on. And he actually wound up, I think, with a, a, a group of writers who were sort of his team. And um, so his son... Alexandre Dumas Fils, who was also a writer and very much a playwright. I love that he wrote for the theater. The father did as well. There's a story, probably apocryphal, but I love it, where Dumas Fils, the son, runs into Dumas Père, the, the father, the author of The Count of Monte Cristo on the street. And the, the father says, so son, have you read my latest book? And the son says, no, I haven't, father. Have you? <laughs> 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 so this is a play about Dumas' grand-père, the grandfather of these writers who have contributed so much to French culture and really to world literature. And the great-great-grandson had quite a bit of swashbuckling to his name, too. That was the fencer, right? The, the Olympic yeah. fencer. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, he came by it honestly, he did, didn't indeed. he? We have a moment in the scene of Tandy fencing, you know, arguing and fencing, and it's really fun. This is for both of you. Why is this story of General Alex Dumas ultimately one of perseverance? What I love about this story in particular, it, especially the way Carolyn has reworked it, it draws parallels between our justice system now and what Alex Dumas had to go through in many cases. You can see some parallels and there's a, a, a perseverance that both of them had to come together and realize. It was really, really, it's about history. It's about race. And it really tells this story about us not repeating the past. Um, and this story is one of those stories that we have not heard. It's an unsung hero. It's someone that we can draw from for people who don't know that this man existed. Now they do. And now they can take pride in him, just like I took pride in his son when I was younger. Yeah, I would just add to that, that both of them are in frustrating, frightening, sticky situations, but they don't give up. They don't necessarily solve everything by the end of the play, but each of them is renewed by this encounter with the other. And that is something that I think we can do for each other now. We can renew each other's idealism. We can renew each other's courage. Sometimes we do it just by telling a story, and I think that's what Teatro du Rev is trying to do. Carolyn Cook, Producing Artistic Director of Teatro du Rev, Theater of the Dream, and Thandiway Thomas de Chasser, who plays General Dumas, Code Noir, Black Code, The Adventures of the First Count of Monte Cristo, is available to stream on demand through March 31st. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org. 
in a moment. Members of the legendary hip-hop group Nappy Roots share details on their new Castleberry Hill Brewery, Atlantucky. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. What do you get when you mix craft beer with renowned hip-hop artists? Well, members of the Atlanta-based group Nappy Roots hope the formula equals opportunity. Atlantucky Brewery opened in February in Castleberry Hill. And recently, rappers Skinny DeBille and Fish Scales caught up with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes to share their aspirations for the brewery. DeVille first explained his personal connection to Atlanta. I've been living in Atlanta for uh, about 12 years now. I've been coming to Atlanta since 96, recording with our uh, group Nappy Roots. And um, Scales came to Kentucky on a, a basketball scholarship, and we all met at Western. So um, we started in Kentucky with Nappy Roots, and then um, just to be closer to the music scene and the industry that we were a part of, I moved my family down to Atlanta. And so I've just been living here, raising my family for the last 12 years, figuring out what the next moves would be from a rap career as an, you know, a grown-up adult. <laughs> I like it. Well, will you share a little bit about just your history of your love of beer? I know you guys started home brewing, but when did you really just fall in love with beer? Man, my recollection goes back to college. You know, when we were um, in at the roots, where I was hung out at the studio, and you know, I was drinking Michelobes and things of that nature. I, I think my other compadres are drinking past Blue Ribbon and some other <laughs> things. Scales is trying to drink some higher end beers at the time. And um, so we've always kind of had beer in our life, I would say. Um, just as college students up to adults. Nappy Roots, uh, we always would um, have beer on the rider. Scales could probably elaborate a little bit better on how we actually transcended from the actual rappers into actual brewers. But beer's always been in our DNA. Yeah, I mean, as college kids, you know, beer is definitely part of college life. It's a cheaper beverage for one. That's why a lot of college kids drink it. But um, for me, I always liked being the guy who walked in the room with something, with a different drink than everybody else, you know, mm. a different beer. I felt like that said a lot about who you are, you know, what you bring to the party. But uh, it wasn't until probably 2007 when um, 
I was living downtown Atlanta and this a store um, right under the, the condos I was living in. And they started bringing in different kinds of beer. And I remember just buying one. I think it was a Session Ale. And I, I bought it. It was a dollar and 50 cent. And as I was checking out, the guy at the front asked me, he said, yo, if anything else you want, just let me know and I'll order it. And that was the first time I even realized that I could get more than just what was on the shelf. Right. You know, was, I, I realized that you can dive deeper into this rabbit hole of beer. And so I just started seeing different beers popping up. I seen a beer for $18 one time, just one single <laughs> bottle of beer. And I had to try it. Like, what is it about this beer that makes it $18? And so, you know, it's just little moments like that just drove me down the path of trying and searching for different beers. And I always knew if I could really introduce Skinny into the journey that I was going on. You know, I know he likes nice things. We always agree on good food, you know, different nice things. And that finally, uh, later on, as we was doing our podcast, Nappy Hour, we had a segment where we would do the beer of the day. And, you know, that kind of led to me introducing different beers to Skinny and since then, we've just been on the journey. And also another moment is when we was on tour, I was given the job to find breweries before the show that we can go to and promote our show that night. Probably get 50 to 100 extra people coming to the show just by going to a brewery and hanging out. And after doing that enough times, you know, you show us something enough times, we're going to figure out how to do it. <laughs> and, and we just caught the love. We caught the bug for it. And... Eventually, that led to us brewing in my garage, and we really was all in at that point into just brewing beer. What was the first beer that you guys brewed in the garage? <laughs> it wasn't beer. <laughs> it was mop water. <laughs> I don't know if you can brew mop water correctly, but that's what it was. It was a d disaster. What were you aiming for? I think it was a pale ale, and it just yeah. it just it wasn't the color of mop water, but it tastes like <laughs> mop water. Like it was just it wasn't good. And the second yeah, was one wasn't good, good either. <laughs> the second one was worse, I think. <laughs> but it wasn't until the third beer. Um, yeah, the first one was a pale ale. The second one we tried to make a um a pumpkin. A pumpkin a pumpkin porter or something. Like a harder beer. We shouldn't have been trying to make that kind of beer as our second beer. And it failed too. It didn't ferment. It never mm. got right. So it wasn't until the third attempt that we actually made something close to a beer. Well, you guys have certainly progressed since then. One of your first partnerships was with Monday Night Brewing, right? That is correct. Well, we did a uh, front porch pale ale. Mm. Um, and it was a 40 IBU. It was a nice golden color. And um, it was around the celebration of our album, Another 40 Acres. You know, that experience in itself was kind of surreal because we had just been talking about Monday night and the, the, the roommate of the brewer stopped by our podcast at the time and he was like you know i know i know the brewer if you want to meet him i can hook it up and we was like yeah we would love to and so the next day we met with monday night and then the following day it's like yeah just, we'll just do it tomorrow and we kind of looked at each other like really and like well that was fast <laughs> and so we shot over the next day and the next day we were making beer with monday night that's when we actually really put the the tire to the pavement they kind of educated us as we were brewing the beer instead of just going and taking the tour for two drink tickets and drinking beers and leaving, you know, now we're able to actually understand the process. We check back in with them uh, occasionally to see how the beer was going. And we made a big event at the end when the beer was released and was able to perform some of our songs as Nappy Roots. 
um, at the brewery while we were drinking our beer. And so that kind of really gave us the idea to say, okay, this is really, this could be bigger than just having a collaboration idea. We can really possibly use our brand and name Nappy Roots and get to a whole nother audience that possibly we weren't, we haven't been hitting as just rappers. You know, there's a whole beer industry out there that we kind of were kind of tiptoeing around, but to actually produce something for that market and still be Nappy Roots, that was a play that we um, thought was a fresh idea into, uh, put the two together and mix hip hop with craft beer. Now you're reaching a whole segment of consumers that you didn't maybe weren't necessarily in the same room before. The light bulb went off of both of our heads like, okay, you know, and that was 2016 when we started that idea. And you guys didn't dive lightly into the entrepreneurial endeavor. You did your research and you went on a road trip of breweries, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we toured uh, as Nappy Roots, like Skills was saying, uh, you know, we were hitting a brewery per city before the show and we were on the road, you know, we were as Nappy Roots before the pandemic, we're doing 75 to hundred shows a year mm. um, as independent artists, different city every day. There's a lot of breweries out there that most people, if you live in your own city, you will not get a chance to uh, see because you just, you're, you're stuck in the old nine to five of your own life, you know? Right. And so, you know, some people take pil pilgrimages to different cities to try beer, but that's our job is to travel. So um, we learned a lot by talking to different breweries in the Northwest, in the Southwest, in the Northeast, in the Southeast, you know, the Midwest. So there's all these breweries are doing different things and having different styles to getting the grain from different places, different hops. They have different techniques. They're using different equipment. And so we just kind of just studied all of that as we were going just to get on the job training in a sense. And, you know, we're talking to the head brewers. We're asking them questions. They're looking at us like, wait a minute, how do you know about you using ABVs and <laughs> You know, and we're just kind of really trying to get into the technique and the equipment they were using. And so we took that serious. And I think that is what allowed them to sit and kind of give us the spew from their side of things a little more better because it wasn't just, ah, yeah, 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 let me drink the beer. It's like, no, how did you make this beer? And that was for three or four years we did that. Mm, good research. Well, when you finally got <laughs> ready for your own, you guys landed in Castleberry Hill, which is a, a part of town that I absolutely love and feel is somewhat underappreciated. Why did you guys decide on Castleberry Hill? Actually, Castleberry Hill kind of found us. While we were making a Black is Beautiful beer with Scofflaw to support the Black Lives Matter movement and, and a lot of the things that were happening um, during the pandemic, we got a call from our good friends at Monday night. And um, they said they have a situation that you guys probably would be interested in. And at this time, we weren't touring because of the pandemic. So we really had a lot of idle time. And we were just kind of in the garage making beer. So we stopped what we were doing at Scofflaw, sat down with Jonathan Baker at Monday night. And he said, I got this opportunity for you guys that you might want to you know, check into. And so pretty much a realtor who represents uh, the Russell family and the, uh, their whole uh, real estate endeavors is also the the same one to help Monday night get situated in Lee and White down here in um, the southern part of Atlanta. So anyway, Realtor knows and represents the Russells. Mr. Russell um, has an event space because of the pandemic shutdown. And he says he wants to open a black brewery there. So immediately the Realtor calls Monday night. Monday night, they, you know, they know, I'm sure they know a lot of black people that are making beer, but they called us first and said, you know, thought this would be a direct, you know, fit for us. So we took the meeting sat with them, saw the space, just looked at it and said, this is an opportunity that we cannot pass up on. I do not want to hear about us talking about we need to open a brewery ever again. <laughs> and so we wasn't ready for the situation, but we were heading in that direction. You know, we had found an attorney. We had had an accountant. 
these things we were going and building a business plan before we saw the space. But when we saw the space, we felt like this is a perfect fit for what we were in the direction we were headed. Maybe a little bit premature, but like I said, it's opportunity that we couldn't pass up on. So uh, we changed our sites and September 7th of 2020, we got the keys to the place and been building it out for the last year and a half, getting it ready. We've been throwing events in there to keep the kind of the dollars rolling in, but just honing in on the equipment, building it out and making it ready for actual brewery, kind of like what we've been seeing as we've been traveling, just getting everything where the universe, you know, aligns the stars for you when you're ready. Even if you're not ready, it, sometimes right. it does it. And we just took advantage of the opportunity when it knocked and um, haven't looked back. But there was never a for rent sign on the building. Like, really? never, there was never a for rent sign. It was like, we want you guys to do it. We was like, okay, let's do it. Don't care what it's <laughs> going to take. And then we just did it. And, and that was it, you know? So I think the building found us kind of how I kind of tell people about the space. This like really it. found us. Yeah, it sounds like it. I haven't had a chance to go yet, but from the pictures I've seen, it looks like you're making art a priority. Yes, ma'am. Um, we have 6,022 square feet of space. You know, the, the space is amazing. It came, Mr. Russell's father, H.J. Russell, uh, spent about $1.5 million on the space just because he could. <laughs> and me and Scales, uh, I, I laugh with him. I'm like, you know, if it was up to us, we would have never had this space this nice. You know, we would have cut corners on the wood right. trim. We would have cut corners on the light bulbs. You know, we would have cut corners every which way we could to save money because, again, like, you know, we're rappers. And to open a brewery takes, you know, it takes a lot of money. Yeah. But to have this space so nice before we got there is a blessing. So we just took advantage of the space and we um, fitted it out with uh, our own furniture. We put the brewery in the back, but the walls were so amazingly white that we had to put something on them. And to put local artists on the walls and make the whole space about beer, art and music makes the vibe of Atlantucky what it is. And as soon as you get in there, it's just the warmth of these local artists on the walls are enough to make you want to stay and have a few beers. Do you have a curator or someone who's helping you find the right artists? Yes, we do. Um, his name is Ian. And this is our fourth art exhibition that we've had. So we've actually gotten better at putting art on the walls and fine tuning what we actually are presenting now is the fourth rendition of art and the idea in itself. And at this point, we kind of just kind of let him do what he does. The first one or two, we kind of checked in with us and asked if this is cool or what we were trying to do. We kind of talked to him about the themes of the art exhibit itself, but we kind of let him kind of bring in the local artists that he has relationships with. So you guys have art, you have beer, and you have music and events. I know you guys have played there already. Are there any other musicians or musical events on the horizon? Yes, actually. We've had open mic nights. We've had, I don't, I don't want to call them concerts, but performances from various artists. We also have comedians as well. That's fantastic. There's such a lack of space in this city for comedians to perform. Yeah, that's what they've been saying. So we hopefully we can um, create this uh, a nice little safe haven for up and comers to try their set, as well as, uh, you know, well-known comedians. I think beer and laughter, is they go hand in hand. Yeah, we're big fans of comedy, stand-up comedy. As we tour as Nappy Roots, we always play comedy, you know, to soothe us in between shows. So, like, we would love to become known for, you know, one day a week you can come here and enjoy good comedy as well as, like Skinny say, the big guys come through and, and get some of their jokes off. I think that is lacking in Atlanta. Atlanta yeah. should have definitely more places where comedians can get on stage and just let some of their jokes loose.
And is there food available? Is, is it just pop-ups? Uh, we have vendors throughout the week. We have four different vendors, but we also have different pop-ups that come. And it's the same as with the comedians. Like, you know, a lot of people have dreams of owning restaurants, but they don't know, they don't have a place to really get started. So we're just using our platform as a showcase for different people who cook. That's great. It's good for the city. Obviously good for you guys too. Well, before we close out, tell me about what beers you guys have brewing right now. Uh, right now, the first beer we ever brewed in this commercial space at Lantucky was Mile High, which is a pale ale, about 6.5%. We're very proud of that beer. If you come in, I, I recommend that be the first beer you try. But we also have Atlantucky Mud, which is a stout. We have Hateville Heft, which is a Hefeweizen, you know, our twist on Hefeweizens, which is a German-style beer. We have a NEIPA. You kind of have to have that these days in the brewery. People love yeah. their IPAs. We just finished the Blackberry Wheat Ale that's oh. going over well. Yeah, people are very interested in fruited beers because we deal with a lot of non-beer drinkers. We have a lot of people who come in who aren't familiar with craft beer. So we're working on good introduction beers. That's what we're kind of working on now. So we have a strawberry blonde ale that we just did yesterday. So looking forward to that. Well, that is fantastic. Congratulations. And I've really enjoyed talking to y'all. Well, thank you. We look forward to providing great opportunity and service and creativeness that can help, you know, show the next level of entrepreneurs that, you know, we're not excluded from the craft beers just because you're black. You know, um, people of color like craft beer just like everyone else. And once they find a place that they can call their own, I think it's going to be beneficial for the whole ecosystem as a whole. Life is good, life is good, life is good. Life can be amazing when you view it like you should. I believe my fellow humans will continue this path. All lives matter, but all lives ain't treated this bad. I got faith in all of y'all who have faith in God. Whether you come or not, just know on earth you still play a part. I hope I get to right my wrongs before my time expire. If I don't, just know I thought about them down to the wire. And I promise. I'm just trying to do better. On my feet and I'm here to Lantucky owners and members of Nappy Roots, Skinny DeVille and Fish Scales. More information about their new Castleberry Hill Brewery can be found on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, we'll hear how Mathilde's new album, Georgia Gothic, was shaped in the quiet seclusion of a woodland cabin. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. From Miley Cyrus to Leonard Cohen, Mathilde Brown finds inspiration for her music in all genres. She is the lead vocalist of the alternative indie Atlanta band, Mathilde. Their third full-length album, Georgia Gothic, will release on March 18th. 
The album highlights the bandmates' admiration for our state, while also sharing how it shaped each of them. Mateel Brown and guitarist backup singer Jonas Willie joined me now via Zoom to talk more about Georgia Gothic. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Mateel, we last spoke in 2018 after the release of your first full-length self-titled album. How would you describe your band's sound? Uh, I think it's, I don't often try to do that. I don't know, Jonah, do you want to? Yeah, I think um, we started out incredibly inspired by the 60s and initially our, our first album was an homage to all the sounds from the 60s that we really dug, at least from a production side of things. I think now we still hold on to those tenets of music, but we try to update and keep things fresh from creative end and, and stay excited about current sounds implemented into the, to the music. So in addition to honoring those 60s sounds, in what other ways has your music evolved over the last four years? I would say from recording techniques and songwriting processes and, and trying to think more than just um, an ABAB song uh, structure. I think I've gotten a lot more confident as time has gone on. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I usually try to not be too specific about like trying to describe the sound, but for me, it's been a kind of a transformative experience with every album. Mm-hmm. What inspired Georgia Gothic? Uh, well, we went up to North Georgia and rented a cabin and just sat and wrote music together, Jonah and I, for a week. It was sort of like this isolated place in the woods where we didn't have any distractions. I don't think we were going there to really try to write an album, but we left with a lot of songs and brought them back to like Atlanta and then recorded them in a studio that Jonah built out. So the album kind of encapsulates that sort of environment, I suppose, because that's where we were. We were really out in the middle of nowhere and it was great. (laughs) Jonah, Mathiel mentioned the studio you built. I was intrigued to learn that the recording took place in a setup in a borrowed room of the dialysis center. Is that correct? <laughs> uh, it yeah. feels like hearing Lois Wright say that to me, but yes, that is, uh, <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Moreland down specifically towards uh, Starlight Drive-In Cinema. Sure. But, um, there was a shopping center down there that the developers had for sale. And during the intermittent time before they were actually selling the property, they allowed artists to facilitate the property. So we had an opportunity to be in this specific building that happened to be an old dialysis center. It was such a weird initial feeling going in there. And then we made it cozy and fun. And it, it turned out to be a little hub while COVID was happening for us to work safely and be um, in our own little creative space, which was amazing for us. And your kidneys are all the better for it. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) The cover of the album shows both of you in red leather outfits holding pitchforks while standing in kudzu. Who decided on that cover art? Well, 
I will take the credit for that. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's sort of a mixture of a, like a reference to Grant Wood's American Gothic painting in some way, but with a more like humorous spin on it. Would you guide us through your first single, Jeff Goldblum? Yeah, that was written quite a while ago, but it was something that like we both kept going back to and like pulling up the file and listening to over the course of a a long time. And every single time I listened to it, it was always still really good. And I I just really enjoyed the song and uh, it made it onto the first track of the album. And it's apparently been on heavy rotation at BBC Six in the UK at the moment. Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't be more thrilled about that. But yeah, it's just about my crush on Jeff Goldblum. Is it true this is the only love song you've ever written? Yeah, I don't usually typically choose that subject matter to to write about, but I'll make an exception for Jeff. (laughs) What is it about him that makes him so attractive across the ocean, as you mentioned, and across generations, it seems? I don't know. I think he's just a lovable character. and He's tall and lanky and funny and weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Unique, uniquely charming, I would say. Yes. Yeah. He's charming like no one else I've seen. Wow. Mm-hmm. Your second single, Lighthouse, was released at the end of January. Can you talk about the meaning behind this song and the vibrant music video that accompanies Lighthouse? One of the focus tracks from the last album, Satisfactory, was called keep the change. And when I wrote the words to that, I was kind of not really aware at the time that it was as meaningful as it ended up being. Because now when we play it at shows, people are very into it and sing the words back. And I hear many different stories from people that are like, oh, this song really helped me through this time. And I never spent too much time trying to describe what the meaning was for me. I think I realized that later and I would apply that same kind of response to a question about Lighthouse because I think it's going to be a song that people hear and they connect to it, but everybody's going to connect to it in a different way. And it's just a very positive and like uplifting song as well. It was interesting writing that specific song because it went through a a few different variations of sound and from the initial demonstration of it, it was very soft and more ambient sounding and then as it developed and we spent more time on it, it kind of became 
a little bit more of like a victorious sounding song to me. And I really love the way it turned out. So yeah, mm -hmm. it was great seeing the, the evolution of, of the song. How does this album pay tribute to Georgia? I think we wanted to like create our own world and really like bring you into that place, which is Georgia, which is a place we're inherently connected with because we live here, we were raised here. And the track listing and the feelings like that are encapsulated in each of the songs can kind of bring you through that experience, kind of like a film of sorts. Um, like the back cover, it was meant to resemble 70s film credits. And we want to like really embrace where we're from, uh, even though our influences span out across the world. And I think like Georgia is a place where talent can be easily overlooked sometimes and the world hasn't seen a, a lot of what Georgia has to offer at the moment. So we want to make something really good that we both believe in and have Georgia's name clearly emblazoned on the cover. Singer Mateel Brown and guitarist backup singer Jonas Willie of the band Mateel. Their new album, Georgia Gothic, will be released on March 18th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll celebrate the outdoors with the Atlanta Botanical Garden and their new exhibit, Orchid Days. Plus, the story behind Buena Vista's Georgia folk art compound, Pasaquan. City Light senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. -E Thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.